Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, uh, which is brought to you by uh, Dispatch Media. You can find out more and sign up for stuff at thedispatch.com. Uh, today's episode is uh, sponsored by uh, Circle and by the Online Trading Academy. More about them in a little bit. Also, uh, we're going to get into the Wonka-Palooza conversation in just two seconds, but we have many listeners who have been deeply invested in the uh, most euphonious accent contest, and we are going to uh, uh, play the entries at the end of this podcast, so please stick around for the end. And today's episode is sponsored by Circle and the Online Trading Academy. We'll talk a little bit more about them in a little bit. But today we have, um, I know last week, the one thing that people really said out of that dense discussion of, or the last episode, um, I keep thinking these podcasts are a week apart, um, people coming out of that episode about political theory and they said, you know, this really needs to get wonkier because this is just too superficial. <laughs> and so to, do, to, to meet the demands of literally dozens, we have um, in the studio none other than than policy wonk extraordinaire and one of uh, director of one of these programs. Okay, you're a director. Have. And what's the name of the program? Uh, Civil Society Education and Work. So okay, at the R Street, R Street Institute, yeah. which is on R Street. It is not. It is um, not on R Street. I hear different stories of the genesis of that name. No, it's uh, like on New York Avenue, like between 10th and 11th. Uh-huh. Like maybe in some previous incarnation, it was on an R Street somewhere. But no, uh, right of center think tank. Um, uh, there's a wide array of issues. So my little area is about localism in civil society and federalism in institutions. And because my past work has largely focused on a set of like K-12 issues and um, workforce development, I spend about 25, 50% of my time on that stuff and the other half on these more conceptual institutional kind of questions. Uh-huh. And um, uh, just so listeners know, you know, you you share to a certain extent my own Trump skepticism, correct? And I mean, I, I do want to—I don't want to embarrass you, but I want to give you a whole lot of credit for this and the podcast for this. That um, it probably has not been easy on you and on maybe your career to like take this position to be like I and a couple other people think that, that we're true conservatives. We believe in stuff like Tocqueville and Burke and Hayek and Nisbet, and this era hasn't been all that easy for us. So the fact that you have. Um, tried to bring together the remnant. Uh-huh. And uh, I mean, you should know this like gives cover to the rest of us. And I think it gives some backbone to other people. It would, it's hard enough being feeling like we're uh, kind of alone in this fight in yeah. this weird era. So keep doing what you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. You know, it's, it's funny every time in Washington in particular, it's a weird thing, right? Because like on the one hand, you it's actually very difficult to find someone in private who is all in for Trump and uh, including congressmen and senators. Yes. It's very difficult to find people who will away from a television camera or a microphone still say he's, you know, um, a 3d chess player and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's difficult to find people who are willing to say he's not one in public <laughs> for sure. And that's what makes you feel really lonely and feel like you're – and they treat you like a little bit like a traitor and they look at you funny in the green room and, and these other places. And right. that's the gaslighting feeling of it. It's like you know that most of these people who are shunning you or ostracizing you or looking down on you or whatever 
actually agree with you, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're insufficiently – patriotic's the wrong word uh, – loyal or – That's right. You know. We have not shown fidelity to the team, to the right. tribe. And this has been one of the big surprises for me. Like I'm always – attuned to the fact that in politics there's a leader of a party, a leader of the movement, and there are just some people who because of their DNA, they gravitate towards a leader and the leader says jump and they say how high. I've just been surprised with Donald Trump how powerful that has been, but also that he has been able to do things that everyone agrees are uh, distasteful at best, mm-hmm. um, appalling at times at worst. And still, he just has this gravitational pull that in public, um, a lot of these elected officials cannot get out of their own way. Like they just, they have to support him and they have to do so loudly. I've been surprised by the, it's been a much smaller number of people than I expected, especially in elected office, who've been willing to consistently criticize him. I thought there would be I don't know, 10, 15, 20, 25, uh, that number shrank pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, for some of them, I mean, part of Ben Sass's argument, and I'm still a fan of Ben Ben Sass's, but, you know, part of it is is that they've been clear that they don't like his style. You know, nobody in Nebraska is under any illusions where Ben Sass comes down on Donald Trump. And so they find it's sort of part of the beltway game where you have to each and every time – denounce, criticize something that he says. And I have a little sympathy for that. I mean, I, I agree. I, I would get kind of exhausting as, you know, every single time someone on MSNBC says, you know, and and where is Ben Sass? And, or, you know, <laughs> right. why hasn't, you know, Marco Rubio spoken up or, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the idea that you have to jump the hoops on a hostile media's schedule would bother me too. But mm-hmm. it's... The thing that shocks me more is 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 the people who agree with Sass who won't say anything at all. You know, I mean, at least Sass does say something from time to time, occasionally. You know, and Romney, you know, too. Uh, but that's sort of about it. That's right. And so, I mean, one of my useful indiscretions is I ran for public office when I was younger, um, and I worked for a bunch of politicians. And so, part of me is always sympathetic to elected officials who are actually out knocking on doors and out in the soybean fields and talking to teachers and entrepreneurs, they are hearing things that D.C.-based people are not hearing. So I always give the benefit of the doubt to them. And there's something – I mean I'm not, I don't want to be too corny about this. Elected representatives are supposed to elect uh, – represent their people. And if Ben Sass's, uh voters want him to behave a certain way, I get it if he needs to do that. So when I'm being my most charitable, I would say I get the democratic impulse here. Let's represent the people who like Donald Trump. I even get this impulse to say I don't agree with everything that he's doing, but uh, – Uh, It's better that I'm kind of part of this. I don't want to just constantly be kicking the president in the shins. Let's see if I can ride this thing out so I can be a leader later on. I try to be sympathetic to that. But when I'm at my most cynical, I wonder, do they quietly kick themselves at night every time the president does something else? And they know that five years, 10 years from now, when the Trump era ends, and it will end at some point, are they going to say, heavens, why did I not stand up more? Time will only tell on this, but obviously I'm in camp B, not A. Right. Yeah, we'll no, I, I agree. Uh, it's it's one of the reasons why I don't want to be a politician. <laughs> um, right. You know, and one of the rules, at, I, mean, I, which I brought up a million times here, but one of the rules at NR going back to the days when Bill Rusher was the publisher is he'd always tell the young, you know, new writers is that politicians will always disappoint you. Mm. And the point was a double-edged thing, right? It was a criticism of politicians, but it was also a criticism – a sort of a preemptive criticism of the kind of young, idealistic, 20-something who goes 
who foregoes going to Wall Street or law school to write for National Review, right? Yeah. Is that we can afford to be consistent in every regard because we don't have to answer to anybody. Right. Um, and the more shocking thing to me is the number of people who don't care about being – who have the same job as basically as we do, who don't care about being consistent because they want to be party people rather than than sort of intellectual people. Um Right. I mean, we are unusual in that way, and we should call that out. I didn't think we were as unusual as it turns out. That, like, I got into this business because I believed in a set of principles, and I learned a lot about how they fit together and how they reflect a view of both a good life and human nature and how that relates to history and governing. So it doesn't matter much to me what Donald Trump says on Tuesday. I'm still going to believe a set of things on Wednesday. Right. Whether that means I'm popular or not, listen, I'm always going to learn and adapt so I'm not like uh, etched into stone. But the number of people who have just been willing to be part of the team so they can continue to be part of the team and build a career like that, for some reason, my uh, my disposition does not allow me to do that. Yeah, yeah. We're in our wilderness years. I mean, this is just we got to ride this thing out. But like the term remnant is important. There's a jolly – well, maybe not so jolly – group of people who – I just do not understand this era and we got to – I view my job as planning for the future. Yeah. I mean I, I think you can be jolly and I think you can understand this era. You just understand that you're going to be sitting on the sidelines for a lot of it, you know, and that's – that's so what, you know. Um, Such is life. <laughs> all right. So speaking of the wilderness, because we can move on beyond the, the Trump stuff because everybody knows where where those arguments are at this point. I mean that's one of the nice things about this moment is that – kind of know where everybody comes comes down now. It's not like right. the early days where you were testing people in conversations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Um, right. Interesting times, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and you wait to see what they yeah, say, yeah. you know? Um, uh, but um, in terms of the wilderness, wilderness years on the intellectual side, yeah. what do you make of these various projects, um, whether it's the Sora Bermari post-liberalism or it's the – I don't know what Holly's preferred label is. Um, I just think of it as like TRism. Like he really yeah. is kind of like this old school populist. Um, I mean, he wrote a book about Roosevelt. So um, I mean, he's a, a prairie conservative populist leader. Like his stuff on tech, uh, I don't totally get it. I don't yeah. know why he's doing that, but he feels it deeply. But it is unlike anyone else out there. Yeah. What he's doing. And then there's Marco Rubio with his common good capitalism. Correct. And then like the Mike Lee of the world who super interesting does like the um, Article 1 project trying to get Congress to step up and then does this social capital project on mediating institutions and um, social capital and then launching an effort on localism, federalism. Yeah. So there are some sparks and these are the folks that I really respect who are trying – they're being policy and political entrepreneurs in a tough time, trying to find a way even though Donald Trump pulls all the oxygen out of the uh, room and – makes people be loyal to him. A number of these people are trying to figure out what the next generation of intellectual conservatism could look like. Mm-hmm. And what we should say is this is not a new thing. I mean, there was Cold War conservatism. I mean, Matt Continenti knows this well and he's talked to you about it. But I mean, that was different than what Barry Goldwater was doing and different than what Ronald Reagan was doing. And then there was contract with America conservatism and then reform conservatism. And I've been talking about capacitating conservatism. There are always adjustments in the movement. It's not like we lock in to something and believe it no matter what. So what we're seeing right now, if we're modest, is just the next generation of contemplation of which of our principles are going to 
can be prioritized, what have to be adjusted. But what I always object to is people acting as though this era is going to fundamentally change everything and Donald Trump is a change maker in perpetuity. Like I've written about, I think that his long-term influence is actually going to be pretty modest, Mm -hmm. that conservatism is strong. It's a way of looking at the world. It has proven itself successful, more successful than Donald Trump so far. And what I look at Holly and Lee and Rubio and some others is doing is trying to figure out how do we take the core of conservatism and adjust it um, for this next era, even though interestingly in Rubio's speech – at Catholic, he makes a point at the end of saying, I am not trying to figure out what a post-Trump conservatism is. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just like a nod to the king or if he actually means that. But it's hard to read that speech without thinking he's trying to uh, come up with a philosophy behind a set of principles for the pr- post-Trump era. Yeah. So I, so let's talk about this because you're a Hayek guy. I'm a Hayek guy. Um, we're both subsidiarity guys. Yeah. Um, so my problem with the Rubio thing, all right, so the, the I can't remember, in The Road to Serfdom, does he say that it's dedicated to socialists in all parties or planners in all parties? I, I thought it was planners, but we should go back planners. and look at that. Yeah, it, either one worked. Is it socialists? Okay, Jack says it's Thank socialists. you, Jack. But, you know, Hayek's point about planning isn't about left-wing planning. Right. It's about planning. That's right. Right? And for... Most of human history, most of history prior to the Enlightenment, basically all state planning was essentially conservative planning, right? It was uh-huh. defend the monarchy and the status quo and maybe the church. But, you know, if a king said we need a new granary, let's build it there, right? I mean, that was planning too. And my problem with the first things crowd, with the with the Rubio stuff, is they seem to think – they seem to have – because conservatives have been complaining about left-wing planning for so long. That's right. They now think that planning means left-wing. Right. And so they think that they can they can do right-wing planning and that makes it – that eliminates the problems that Hayek points out in like you know, knowledge problem stuff. Exactly. Is – won't work. It won't, won't apply. And of course it will apply. Plan, the problems with planning from Washington are the same problems whether you're doing it from the left or the right. Absolutely. And James Scott in Seeing Like a State talks about this exact thing. Um, And he's a socialist, but he points out that, yes, big state socialist revolutions and authoritarians always tried to do planning, get rid of mediating institutions. But big corporations tried to do the exact same thing. So this Mm. is not – it is a way of thinking about the world and Hayek talks in his – of Nobel accepting speech about the difference between thinking like an engineer and thinking like a gardener. Mm -hmm. Um, The first is a sense planning that you can just adjust some knobs and get the results you want. The other is you create the conditions such that good things can happen. And something has happened uh, and it is – and I'm happy you linked together the – conservative nationalism crowd and the post-liberal crowd and some of the things that at least I'm inferring from Rubio's speech is that um, their view of nationalism strikes me as a bit too statist Mm -hmm. and they're not making the connection that I think you and I are making, which is once you start to decide that there is a common good um, and in his speech, he makes this case, which is partially true, which is something along the lines of markets um, uh, should serve society, not the other way around. Great. The Tucker position of the markets are just the tool. Right. Has problems. But anyway, go on. Right. But society, in a sense, is the market. It's a bunch of independent. 
independent individuals making autonomous decisions and a market is just the aggregation of all of those decisions. What I find troubling is when people start to say, well, the market uh, shouldn't define society. Society should start to tell the market what to do. If you start to define the society as the government, especially the central government, then all kinds of distortions start happening. Right. When the government decides that we need to be all in favor of Detroit or all in favor of sugar or all in favor of college loans or all in favor of low-cost mortgages, the government often decides what the common good is. And then we see warping of behavior. And for some reason, um, it just seems like this generation of kind of nationalist populist folks think that they know what the common good is and that they can uh, turn the levers of Uncle Sam's machine and generate the results that we want and there will be no unintended consequence. I like to say that my job is I'm an anthropologist of failed technocratic reforms and business is always booming. This is just the next iteration of that, I worry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, that's the thing is, is when people say we have to do this for the good of society, we're both conservatives. We actually believe there are some things the state has to do for the good of society. Yes. But they have to be so incandescently obvious that anybody who disagrees with you is almost by definition crazy or a true radical, right? I mean, it's right. like, like no one disputes the, pre the, 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 the state whether it's local or, or federal, that's a prudential question. But the state, the government, the authorities, law enforcement should combat child molesters wherever it can within the mm -hmm. bounds of reason, right? <laughs> we, we think that, that, pun that murderers should be apprehended and punished. These are things that have almost no partisan valence to them. Mm -hmm. It's when you start saying people, we, you know, it's for the good of society, we have to get rid of infinite scroll on Facebook that – you are trying to yoke to your policy preferences a sort of corpus mysticum argument about huh. the society, and it's it's basically stealing. It's 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 intellectually stealing a base, and it seems to me that's what Rubio does in that speech. Is he says these are all these things that we want, and therefore the state needs to regulate the market to get them without providing a lot of evidence that that would actually work. And to me, I just don't – I mean, I sound like Kevin Williamson here. It's very hard for me to distinguish as a matter of first principles between Rubio's position and and uh, Elizabeth Warren's position about regulating – she has accountable capitalism. He has common good capitalism. Right. What's the difference? Well, I think that both senators are probably coming from the point of view that there is a consensus out there that capitalism unfettered is going to generate uh, the results capitalism wants, but those may not be what society wants. And that is true to a sense, like capitalism – or markets are agnostic or ambivalent, like they don't necessarily trend in any particular direction. So I get that. Uh, one of the problems here is though um, – I mean I believe in e pluribus unum as, and as a conservative, I always felt like we were fighting for the pluribus, recognizing that differentiation and community and the differences were important. This increase like thumb on the scale among some people on our side of the political spectrum of like emphasizing the unum is actually kind of disturbing mm -hmm. that as though there is a single answer to a bunch of these problems. And what I found most striking is that he gave this speech um, at Catholic and a number of the people who are thinking along the same lines view themselves as part of the first things crowd or um, they're part of the Catholic community. But it's noticeable that in his speech, he never once mentioned the term subsidiarity, mm -hmm. um, nor did he in his First Things article, nor did he in the National Review article that followed up. And like 
not to get too Catholic wonky here, but in these encyclicals in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it is very clear that Church says that particularism is allowed. There's not a single way of governing. Mm. Differences are legitimate um, in the way that we go about things as long as all regimes are respectful of natural law, natural rights, the dignity of the human person, so forth. Uh, but it's more than that. Subsidiarity, which is a core of Catholic social thought, is that we have to distribute power and give power to the entities, whether individuals, families, community-based organizations that can handle them, that ought to have them, and this is duties and authorities. And only if one of those bodies or individuals is incapable of doing their job should a higher order right. body get involved. But when the higher order body get involved, it's not involved in perpetuity. It's a short-term effort um, and it should be light touch so that body can then get up on its feet again. Now, the Rubio of 2016 and lots of conservatives prior to this era kind of took this stuff for granted, that localism was right, federalism was right, mediating institutions were right, that we should distribute power. This new era of – like his speech was heavy on the solidarity and very light on the subsidiarity, mm -hmm. um, heavy on the unum, less so on the pluribus. And so the speech, there's lots of good stuff in it. I like the fact that he emphasizes work, that he's willing to reconsider economic policy today. Great. But I think interjecting this idea of distributed power, subsidiarity, if he's going to use Catholic social thought, uh, that's going to be essential. Yeah. No, I mean, you wrote a good piece for National Affairs, what, about two years ago about Hayek and subsidiarity? Yep. Right? And so one of my favorite metaphors, and it's from real life, as I, I get I get do metaphors have to be from real? No, they can be. Yeah, they can be imagined, right? Yeah, you know, like a oh. Wookiee losing a chess, right? So that's not a real from real life. Thor's hammer, right? Okay, so um, uh, there's this phenomenon in that when I was in college, physicists finally figured out the explanation for, which was that farmers have noticed for thousands of years that on occasion, big rocks will show up in their field. And it turns out that the big rocks rise from below the soil and, and emerge at the top. And they could never figure out the process or, like, come up with a mathematical formula for it or something. I mean, I can't remember exactly why it was front page of the science section news in 1989, whenever it was. But it's sort of like the same phenomenon you get when you open a box of cornflakes. All the big cornflakes are at the top uh -huh. and all the garbage is at the bottom. Or as I hear some people do, if you open a big bag of weed, similar things, but that we don't need to get into that. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Um, and uh, it turns out when you actually think it through, it's this fascinating process where if you have the normal background vibrations of soil or of a cereal box, right, mm -hmm. they're going to create spaces. The spaces that they're going to create are going to start small yep. and get bigger. And so when the small spaces widen just enough for a medium-sized piece to fall in, That'll fall in. If they get big enough for just a small piece to go in, they're in. So over time, the sifting process causes small things to drop, and the small things then push the big things up. Mm -hmm. And to me, that should be the operative metaphor for thinking mm. about governing, in that at a local level, people understand how to fix little problems on their own in the best way. But then over time, some issues rise up and have to be federal issues. Mm -hmm. And the most obvious ones were things like slavery and abortion. And the thing that links the two of them is it gets to a fundamental question about who is a human being. Mm -hmm. And that ha that you can't leave to federalism, mm -hmm. right? You know, you can't have, you know, uh, in, in 
Nebraska, they kill left-handed people. Right. But in Minnesota, they don't, right? You have to have universal standards if you're going to have a Bill of Rights or any of that. That's right. Some things have to be uniform. Right. And the problem I have with the top-down anti-subsidiarity stuff is that it short-circuits that process. And Mm -hmm. it says, we are going to treat all the little things like big things. And... Um, and that we are going to intervene from very, very far away to fix this because we know what is best. And it's literally impossible. Like at, at your local church, if you know that the McCoys can't stand the Hatfields and so you better not seat them together at the at the, <laughs> at the picnic, the idea that some Rexford Tugwell type in yeah. Washington is going to know that is insane, you know? Impossible. And, and I just don't get why people like – Rubio or the folks at First Things who've been taught this stuff can't see it and are, or are willing to ignore it or at least not come up with an argument that anticipates this objection. Do you have a theory about why? Uh, no, and I like the way that you pose the question. What I've been thinking about is that giving them the benefit of the doubt, there is no question in my mind that we are in a profound sense of like a lack of community to use Nisbet's term here. And it's been going on for some time, but it's particularly pronounced today in America but elsewhere. I mean, Brexit and populism, all of this is a function of people feeling like a lack of community efficacy agency over their lives. And I love the Dr. Martin Luther King line that a riot is the language of the unheard, that people get frustrated um, and they act out when they don't have power to control their own lives. And I think that's what we've seen over the last number of years, that people are revolting. They want more and more control. We have a sense of like a lack of community. The problem is, and like Rousseau started some of this stuff and socialist revolutionaries of all types do this. They capitalize on the um, the fact that we're untethered from one another, that we've become atomized. And then they centralize us at the highest level possible, as opposed to saying what Nisbet or others would say. No, 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 no. That's not the answer. Actually, that reinforces the problem. Mm -hmm. If you separate um, individuals from one another, of course, they look to the central power for protection and for meaning meaning you clear out all these mediating bodies. That becomes extraordinarily difficult. Um, I think that a lot of folks just sense the lack of meaning, the lack of community, and they gravitate towards the central government instead of what we were taught, Mm. which is, no, 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 hit pause. What you do is you rebuild communities. You rebuild these mediating institutions. But it is much easier, I think, especially when you have a president who's talking about build that wall and nation first to say that we can have community at the national level. I I just feel like we need, especially with the next generation of conservatives, to talk to them about the dangers of um, giving people meaning and community to a community that's very, very far away. And I think we've done a bad job of that. Yeah. No, I, this is a constant refrain of mine. I agree with you entirely. But you know it's another constant refrain of mine? Circle. Okay. So um, I think I've mentioned this in in passing once or twice before on this podcast. I have a bit of a... Um, iPhone game addiction problem. Um, I tend to like listen to the news and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. I used to play this zombie shooting game while I did it. Um, and these days I play uh, um, uh, Starfleet Command and um, I am trying to regulate my own consumption. We've had battles in my house with my daughter who um, did a lot of, you know, sort of was it Minesweeper, Candy Crush type stuff? And um, 
it's a real issue. And it doesn't mean I'm in favor of Josh Hawley's policy proposals about all of this kind of stuff. But limiting screen time is a real thing that, you know, uh, I think is important, particularly for parents of, of young kids. Kids face a million distra- online distractions, Fortnite, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, the list goes on. Circle makes it easy to take childhood off, to take childhood offline when needed so they can focus on homework, chores, or bedtime. Circle is the easiest way to manage your family's online time across all their connected devices inside and outside your home. With Circle Home Plus and the Circle app, parents can filter what content is allowed, set limits for screen time, and monitor history and usage. They can keep track across connected devices from laptops, phones, and tablets to smart TVs, streaming devices, and video game consoles, all from one app. Each family member has a profile that's fully customizable to their needs, age, and maturity. You'll never stop worrying about your kids, but with Circle, you'll have one less thing to worry about. So right now, our listeners get $30 off a Circle Home Plus when you visit meetcircle.com slash dingo. That's M-E-E-T-C-I-R-C-L-E dot com slash dingo. Enter dingo at the checkout. Get $30 off when you visit meetcircle.com slash dingo and enter dingo at the checkout. That's meetcircle.com slash dingo to save $30. And we thank Circle for sponsoring this podcast. Um, All right, so let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, You have the, um, I don't know if it's curse or blessing or duty or whatever phrase we (laughs) want to put on this, of, of actually having to silo into an actual public policy area where I can wander around like a day drinker on St. Patrick's Day from one saloon to the other, right? <laughs> so um, uh, um, your main ballywick is education. That's right. Right. What – so this is a point I, I, I harp on all the time with people who – you know, I go to a lot of conservative confabs and people stand up and they will give harangues about how terrible the public schools are and they're teaching us these terrible things about these un-American things, these unpatriotic things, all this socialism, yada, 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 and they pin it all on the public schools. Mm-hmm. And I get where they're coming from and I, uh, the general thrust of their complaints I'm basically on board with. But in Washington, D.C., in New York, in L.A., People like me have school choice. Uh-huh. Don't send our kids to public school, and they get all that stuff there too, right? And sometimes I think it's actually probably worse. Um, certainly, my friend David French, who lives in Tennessee, he says his kids' high schools is like like American high school. It's like a, out of a TV show. There's like normal high school stuff, um, and the the high schools that a lot of my friends on the coasts send their kids to is full of this all these arguments about about gender identity and multi, you know intersex bathrooms or whatever the stuff is yeah. isn't the real problem the ideology of the people who go into the education profession to a certain extent and not the material organization not the physical organization or institutional organization of public versus private school uh Yes to some of that. But let me take like half a step back. And yeah, say, you, you can, it's a multiple choice. You can, okay. you can choose what you want from all that. Well, uh, 
uh, let me do a segue from our previous conversation. Education is a great example of what you were talking about, that this is, um, in general, K-12 education is one of those things you shake the cornflake box and, like, the fact that we need education is a a big cornflake that goes to the top. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about real policy making, and I think that we need to do a better job teaching young conservatives who go into government this issue, is that you can decide that there is a conservative principle that needs to be acted upon or you think a problem needs to be solved, but that does not mean that you need to uh, implement a uniform solution. Mm -hmm. So we decided through state constitutions over the past 100 years that uh, state governments have a constitutional obligation to provide K-12 education. There, because of the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court case, they decided in the 1970s there is no federal right to education. Uh, if you're going to have schools, they can't be racially discriminatory and so forth, thanks to Brown. But whether or not there's a K-12 system or what it looks like, that's left up to state governments. So that is like a big rock that goes to mm-hmm. the top of the surface. But that does not answer the question, how does it then get implemented? Because of America's system of pluralism and belief in localism and the fact that people like to know the folks who are educating their kids. We have a history of hyper, hyper small local school districts. Now, a lot of people in America think of public education, these big districts like New York City that educates 1.1 million kids or Los Angeles, 700,000 kids. But the average school district in America has something like six and a half schools. Mm -hmm. And that's even distorted because the mean is pulled up by like New York. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the mode is more like four or the median is four or five. So most of these districts are quite small. So this is just an example of most people's interactions with public schools are hyper-local, democratically legitimate, neighborhood-based schools. And the survey data over eons has shown that most people actually like their public schools. Mm. But it's just like members of Congress. If you were asked to people, ask people, do you like Congress? Everyone says no, like 12% approval rating. But they like their congressmen, yeah. So the same thing happens in public education. Do you like America's public education? People give it a D or F. Do you like your local public schools? They give it an A or a B. Mm-hmm. That's now a lot of elites like roll their eyes and say, oh, all these mouth breathers, they don't understand. Uh, they can't, they're so parochial. When in fact, it's the other way around. Maybe people actually like their local public schools because their local public schools do what they want them to do. This is actually a nice thing about localism. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first question is, if we, if you or I don't like what someone else's public schools are doing, fine, we don't have to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be the case that Poughkeepsie's doing something that I don't like or Phoenix, but the people there like to do it. They have a, a democratically elected board. Um, they get to do what they want. It is true, however, that people like you and I, if we want to, we are able to use our means to either move to a place that we like our schools or to send our kids to private schools. Mm -hmm. And then we can try to help shape those kinds of schools the way we want to. The school choice movement has been so fascinating and even after 25 years, 30 years now, continues to grow because it used to be just this social justice claim that low-income families don't have means. They're assigned to schools that don't work for them. Let's allow them to do something else. Um, They don't have power in their system to make their schools any better. But increasingly, like in Arizona, uh, they're using these things called education savings account. Um, More and more and more families are using more public programs. It's something like 60 public programs now exist that enable families to access schools other than the ones to which their kids would be assigned Mm -hmm. using public money. So what we're seeing in this era beginning in like 1990, 1991 is more and more different types of schools, more diversification, differences among them, and more public money or publicly supported money through tax credits that enable families to choose. And what we're seeing is great diversification. So back in the day, 100 years ago, 
or even New York City, a lot of schools are called PS1, PS2, sure. PS3. I got mugged by kids from PS9 all the time growing up. <laughs> and so like, and, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, that to go, like, but like this is what James Scott would call seeing like a state, that right. this is legibility from a central point of view. If you're going to control a thousand schools, you want them to be called PS1, PS2. It just makes sense. In this new era where we recognize diversity and pluralism and local control, let's have an outward bound school or a school that's um, college prep for middle schools or all boys or all girls. This is the kind of story that I think 20 years from now people will look back and say about K-12 education during this era. Mm -hmm. That it's one of the great news stories that with all this nationalism, centralization happening – There's never been a time since the common schools movement 100 plus years ago where we have seen so much energy and diversity and choice in education. Okay, so getting back to my meandering point, um, which I plead guilty to, um, which also ties the two parts of this conversation together. I'm a big Schumpeter guy. Yep. Right? And Schumpeter said, argued pretty profoundly that, that capitalism was corrosive of traditional values and local institutions and and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff because it was so relentlessly efficient and you know he has this line where he says it's it is just as corrosive to the divine right of kings as the bourgeois family or something yeah. like that right and like water seeking its level it wears down whatever is in its path yep and I'm not sure I entirely agree with that, but I think it's a really important thing to worry about and think about, and it's a good cautionary tale. Um, And so um, a lot of what, you know, when I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, a lot of what the Rubio types are doing is they're acknowledging that fact, and they are trying to figure out a way to temper that effect of it. Mm -hmm. But part of the process that Schumpeter warns about and why he thought socialism was inevitable was that the process of capital he borrowed this from Nietzsche the process of capitalism elevating you know uh, captains of industry and all of this kind of stuff um, the captains of industry then have kids who instead of wanting to go into the business they become lawyers and by the third generation they become English teachers essentially mm-hmm. and they are these the intellectual new class that then, tries to undermine and destroy capitalism from within by turning virtues into vices the same way the priestly class did in, in, in with Christianity, according to Nietzsche, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And it seems to me that the people who go into education, particularly via the education schools, the graduate schools, mm-hmm. they are taught as a matter of pedagogical philosophy to, to teach sort of the Howard Zinnian view of America that that the idea of, you know, we don't do a lot of civics, but we do a lot of social studies. And the idea of social studies is just to find the things to run down the country. Mm-hmm. And the best teachers who come through those programs, whether they, go, they they'll either go to really good public schools or really good private schools, but it's the same philo- philosophy. Mm-hmm. That's what worries me. I, you know, I mean, I, I'm all in favor of school choice. It's great. But school choice, where, where, at least where school systems are bad. But um, and I'm also in favor of homeschooling, where it's a safety valve against bad public schools or whatever. But to me, the real problem is that ideology, and it's this, it's it's analogous to the problem that what they you know when my friend Steve Hayes went to Columbia Journalism School in a class of like 300 people or something like that, him and one other person 
were conservative. Everybody else was liberal. There's an ideological sorting mechanism that a certain bra- the left wing branch of the meritocracy goes to these kinds of graduate schools for good reasons. I mean, for sincere reasons. They want to help. They yes. they want to. Yes. You know, they're the they're they have the ameliorative gene that they want to fix society. They're not bad people. They think they're doing good things. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're the ones who go to these credentializing institutions. And they come, and then they, through public choice theory dynamics, they tend to turn these institutions into guilds mm-hmm. that only filter for people like them. Mm-hmm. And then they run our public schools and our private schools, and they they teach a view of America that is very much, in the Schumpeterian sense, undermining the country. Okay, so let me agree with some of that, but give you hope on another one. <laughs> okay, so it is true that most elite. Uh, uh, institutions of higher education, uh, to be diplomatic, have a leftward bias, and that this is also reflected in their schools of education. Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. Um, but it is also the case that survey data has shown us that if you look at the teacher, uh, teachers in general, their party ID and their conservative liberal, they look way more like America mm-hmm. than the institutions that are training them. So it is absolutely the case if you were to go to some elite private school in a swanky neighborhood in a big city um, with progressive families, you were likely to hear a lot of sociology talk, um, very progressive stuff. I had the benefit of being uh, a bureaucrat both in Maryland and in New Jersey in the school system. Uh, New Jersey has like 600 school districts. Maryland has 24. Like, yes, the Teach for America crowd or people who came out of certain colleges of education have certain progressive views. If you go to a regular old history classroom in Garrett County or in Mercer County in New Jersey or in Somerset County in Maryland, things are going to look a whole lot and sound a whole lot more like American pluralism and democracy and patriotism mm-hmm. than you would recognize. So I think there is uh, – sometimes we have a tendency to overreact to the progressive biases of the educator's education and thinking that is always filtering into our schools. In a way, no, our schools, because they are democratically governed, these public school districts, and often in red areas, the school boards are very, very red, Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't put up with a lot of that stuff. So I don't want to totally apologize and say that it's not a problem, but it's less of a problem than many people think. Okay, but just to push back on that for a second, it's sort of like the old arguments. I remember having these arguments before the rise of internet about whether or not, you know, the mainstream media was really liberal. And the mm-hmm. argument in the early 90s before, you know, the internet destroyed a lot of newspapers and all the rest and before cable became the behemoth that it is, the argument was, well, you know, look, there are 5,000 newspapers in this country and sure, the New York Times and the Washington Post are liberal, but most of them are much more like what you're talking about. Yep. You know, the, the North Dakota Gazette Correct. is, is uh, moderate to conservative, blah, 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 blah. The counter argument to that was always that, yeah, but the New York Times and the Washington Post, Time, Newsweek, ABC, NBC, and CBS, all who, all of whom with the exception of the Washington Post are headquartered within a, basically a square mile of each other. They set the tone and tenor for all media coverage. They decide what are the big stories and what aren't. And they are the places that the people working at these other places one day dream of working for. That's right. And so in the same way with the education stuff, I – as I said, you know, David French says his high school is just like a high school. Like, um, um, but and I, I believe that's true for a lot of these places. But the private schools that pay the most, the ones that 
are the most prestigious if you're going to make a career out of this stuff and if you want to go teach at Exeter or whatever, they do conform much more to this ideological line than, you know, the Yadahay Flats, Nebraska mm-hmm. high school. Right. They control the commanding heights of the culture. I mean, it's just another – in the meritocracy, the mainstream media is controlled by the same – the analogous ideological cohort in Hollywood – it's the same ideological cohort and in education. It seems to me, and this is my suspicion, like Harvard, Yale, all the Ivy League type places, mm-hmm. they are governed by that ideological point of view, whether you're talking about education schools or not. Am I wrong about that? I mean, y- yes. So, uh, but the politics at Harvard and Yale and Sanford and Amherst are different than the politics in the campus environment at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and at you know, Clarion University. And uh, right, it, I'm talking about the asymmetrical power they have, those institutions have over the culture compared to the Clarion University or whatever. Yes, they, they do have disproportionate power. I think we have a tendency to overestimate how much power they have. Okay, that's possible. Yeah, there are lots of people. So this is one of my experiences from working in state government. It's like that old Dr. Phil line about we'd care a whole lot less what people thought of us if we realized how seldom they did. Mm. When you're working at state government, you realize how seldom people actually talk about Washington, D.C., how seldom they're talking about Donald Trump, how seldom they're talking about their kids getting into Harvard or what Harvard's thinking. They're thinking about, like, how do I get my kid this apprenticeship or get into this two-year college or, you know, he had some drug problems. Let's see if we can work these things out. Um, so, yeah, like the the cultural influence of these big institutions, I don't want to minimize it, but it's also the case that one of the glories of America's decentralized system of schools and their democratic legitimacy is that it serves as a bulwark against a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said that, I'm working on a couple projects related to how do we get civics education to take character and virtue more seriously because – in the past 10 years, this thing called social-emotional learning and grit and resilience has kind of taken over. Essentially, we found ways to talk about character without really talking about character. Mm-hmm. We tell kids to work hard and be resilient, but we don't talk about honesty and decency and morality because that can butt up against religion and that makes some people quite um, uncomfortable. But currently, there's a big movement to rethink civic standards and civics tests. A lot of people are working on this right now. Character education, virtue education is coming back. So uh, I'm more hopeful on this than mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to just give you some optimism. It's bad, but not that bad. <laughs> but uh, to go back to one of your other points, the, the Schumpeter point, which is worth pointing out, I agree and it is absolutely the case that capitalism gone too far or markets gone too far can corrode a bunch of the things that enable capitalism to succeed. But Robert Nisbet, the reason why Quest for Community is so good and so powerful is he concedes that point about capitalism. But he also says that the fact that the Catholic Church broke down and all these um, Protestant sects happened and that they separated individuals from a church community and created a relationship between the individual and God. That's another way that people get separated. Mm -hmm. Um, Nisbet also points out that the homogenizing state, the big nation state, had the same influence. Um, Technocracy has the same thing. When we defer power to um, technical experts instead of relying on tradition, that's another way that we're hollowing out like the wisdom and the mediating institutions. My point here is that a real understanding, I think, of society's atomization and the fact that people feel a lack of community 
Part of that explanation is capitalism, and I'm happy that some people are talking about that. I worry that there are people on our side of the aisle who are focused too much on that and not focused on all these other things. I blame Supreme Court decisions. I blame the administrative state. I blame the book Nudge. I blame um, the Obama administration for a lot of this like lack of community stuff. So yes, capitalism, but that's probably 5 10 percent of the problem, um, not like 80. Yeah, so uh, since – we are now entering the airing of the grievances portion. Um, <laughs> my problem, okay, so I, it's it's a great frustration of mine that I used to have aimed entirely at the left, where for the last century, maybe longer, yeah, well, the last century and a half, we have for the most part seen the trend lines towards more and more regulation, more and more government involvement in the economy, and each new reform is sold as an effort to soften the hard edges of capitalism. And each new reform, whether it's in 1920, 1940, 1960, 1980, 2000, 2019, the straw man that they are up against is unfettered capitalism. We've been fettering capitalism for a frickin' 150 years, right? Agreed. And... All of the red tape that we have, all of these regulations that we have, they always start the clock back at zero and say capitalism is running amok. And what's particularly frustrating for me to hear it now from right wingers where Marco Rubio has been using the Tea Party-ish rhetoric about government getting too involved in our lives and too much red tape and too much bureaucracy. And now all of a sudden he is buying into this sort of Tucker Carlson notion that that libertarians have been running everything. Libertarians are like, for the last 30 years in Washington, have been, you know, cutting themselves or drinking NyQuil in frustration as the state gets bigger and bigger. And yet we're now told that all of this time they were getting everything that they wanted. It's such a straw man argument. When we saw this in California where, you know, or with like Enron, this you know, the you have all these things where every time big businesses do screwed up things or with the financial crisis mm-hmm. big businesses do screwed up things and it's all because we let capitalism run amok and it's not because of the distorting influence of all of these ridiculous regulations and rules about expanding housing and you know what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae did for to 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 distort the markets it's always capitalism's fault it's never how the state unnaturally distorts capitalism so it can't self correct that's my big Frustration with all. I'm supposed to take seriously all of these indictments of capitalism as if we haven't been putting bridles and saddles on capitalism for the last 150 years. I agree with all of that. And it seems to me that um, something happened in the combination of the economic crisis in 2006, 2007, 2008, and the opioid addiction crisis, and offshoring and automation and then the opioid addiction crisis, that all of these things sort of hit at about the same time or our consciousness hit at the same time. And a lot of people put those things together and reason that capitalism is the bad guy here, that um, it allowed our jobs to go elsewhere. It allowed us to not care about a bunch of communities. We were just doing efficiency. I get all that. Um, So I understand the pedigree of the thinking that led to it. I just wish that in hindsight, I wish I had been – more prescient here, been able to say, no, 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 let's not go nationalism, let's not go anti-capitalism, let's actually recognize that there are other solutions to these kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. So if I look forward 10 years, like, again, not to embarrass you, but I think your book, 
Suicide of the West, and then reading that alongside Orrin Cass's book on the Once and Future Worker and Tim Carney's book, um, which is outstanding. It's a great book. Um, and then both Yuval's recent book on the Fractured Republic and his new book, which I just got in the mail mm-hmm. to review. Um, I think this is going to get give us a clear sense that, I mean, your book does the best job of helping us understand how thankful we should be about, like, the fact that democratic liberalism and capitalism came together and changed the world in a way that no one could have expected. But in this era, a bunch of really bad social things occurred and people had the right to be upset about that. And we did not have at the ready a set of policy proposals. And this is where I kick myself to say um, – Uh, Like the policy window opened and we should have been able to throw the seeds down um, and we weren't ready for it, how to deal with all of this stuff. And I think this is one of the the big flaws over the past 10, 15, 20 years of the conservative intellectual industrial complex that we should have seen some of this stuff coming and we didn't. And because of that, it created space for some of these uh, views that I think are unhealthy, like the post-liberal stuff, Mm -hmm. the hyper-nationalism stuff. and so this is part of the reason why I'm obsessive about thinking about how do we create policies that aren't anti-capitalist, that distribute power back to civil society bodies? How do we generate a next generation of conservative leaders who have read Nisbet and Hayek and Tocqueville and Friedman and um, Scalia, who understand some of these principles? Um, I just think that we weren't prepared for this moment. And I take as much responsibility for that as anyone. Having said that, Yuval and team, the folks who were doing reform conservatism stuff, and Raihan and Dathut's book, mm-hmm. which increasingly looks prescient. They didn't predict Trump, but they predicted uh, a Trumpist era. Mm-hmm. Some people were thinking about these things. Um, I just wish that the policy makers among us or the policy developers had been ready for this moment. Yeah, uh, and uh, okay, so to cut you some slack. Um, the Wonk Brigades. Um, the true wonk brigades. I'm 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 a wonk to people who are truly outside of this world, right? But like I actually don't do policy development stuff. You actually are a real wonk, right? Because like you think about like I think about statutes and regulations yeah, from time and, to time. Yes. Enabling regulation and <laughs> language, all I don't do any of that stuff. It's like I don't do windows, I do, you know, and, and I don't do that. But um the conservative media industrial complex, which is where I take my lumps and my offer my mea culpas, um, was way too hostile to any threats to the established narrative that was being peddled in a lot of outlets. And um, the and, – and, you know, like not to pick on the Wall Street Journal, friends at the Wall Street Journal, I like a lot of the stuff that they do, but the – unbelievable Olympian scorn they had for things like child tax credits. Anything that deviated from like the Reagan 82 Agreed. tax plan was a real barrier to entry for uh, the Yuval Levin types who wanted to sort of think creatively about, as Yuval always put it, applying Reaganite principles to new problems. Yep. Um, and and then you get into the whole sort of talk radio Fox News thing, which anything that could be, you know, lambasted as um, sort of uh, red Tory deviationism, you know, anything that yeah. sort of sounded like it was, you know, it was rhinoism, yep. was mocked and ridiculed, and you're you're you're, you're pissing on Reagan's legacy kind of stuff, mm-hmm. um, made it very difficult. To get the attention of Congress and policymakers, because those were the gatekeepers of of, of the sort of 
communication channels between wonks and and those guys. And that's a really good point. And I and that's that was a big. This, I mean, I've brought this up a million times on this podcast. This is one of my great frustrations about how when we got Trump. A lot of the people who for years were mocking people like Strain, Michael Strain and Yuval Levin and Ramesh and the Reformicons, um, they were like, you don't understand. Trump is winning over the white working class. That's who we need. You know, that's the, these are the Reagan Democrats that we got to get back, blah, 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 blah. And people like Yuval and these guys, they were trying to – they were proposing stuff for years. I mean, Ross and, and Ryan too, you know, proposing stuff for years to reach out to these people and they were being mocked as rhino squishes and Correct. and 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 ridiculed for it and then the problems of that constituency got so bad that they were willing to vote for a trump rather than like and so my point is always what if the gop had actually dealt with these problems when they were manageable problems when the cornflakes were small <laughs> um you would have had a um we might have brought them into the coalition without losing the entire suburban part of the GOP coalition. Such a good point. So I was working for a member of Congress uh, on September 11th. Um, he was a progressive Republican. Um, but he ended up getting primaried and getting beat because of like club for growth uh-huh. uh, investment. There was clearly an orthodoxy to which he was not hewing and – he was labeled as a rhino. Right. He was a type of person who would have been sympathetic to the claims that we now realize people should have been sympathetic to. But you're right. He was viewed as a heretic. And so he got primaried and he lost. And um, the seat is held by someone different, very much more conservative. And interestingly, I think Club for Growth just sent out like a tweet yesterday defending Donald Trump. Club for Growth breaks my heart. I mean, I got lots of friends over there. I used to do stuff for them. I mean, I'll, I'll do stuff for them again, but I'm going to say things they're not going to like. But um, they just went hammer and tongs against Mitt Romney for saying that, you know, some of these allegations and the impeachment stuff are worth thinking about. Why Club for Growth, which was founded as to be an outside ideological enforcer for a very strict understanding of politics <laughs> and infuriated the entire GOP establishment, is now basically... Um, a partisan in for- barrier for the GOP for Trump, and it's 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 grotesque. And I, I think part of it is is that the it's another example which is all over the place, and there are a few places that have have bucked the trend of donor capture. Yeah, is that the donors demand total fealty to Trump, and so there are all sorts of institutions we can name that have become wildly Trumpy that. Do so because they know if they deviate even slightly from it or or their representatives do in public that they're going to hear from their donors. I mean this just makes me think that there should have been an effort 10, 15 years ago to simultaneously generate this next uh, generation of leaders who had worked at the state and local level, had a better finger on the pulse of what uh, conservatives were thinking, including a lot of these blue-collar issues, and that there had been some sort of C4 effort uh, in – a campaign effort and able to protect them. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many Republicans ended up just being terrified of Club for Growth um, primarying them? And this goes to even like even maybe the most remarkable thing in the Republican Party over the past couple of years, which is the House Freedom Caucus, mm-hmm. which had been, as I understood it, like they were rock ribbed when it came to limited government. Yeah, they were like Tea Party-ish Club for Growth guys. Absolutely. And now they're just whatever – you know, Comrade Trump says whatever Trump says. That's um, is that a matter of funding? Like they want to make sure that the donors with them. Did the donors really direct all that stuff? I don't know if it's donors entirely with con- congressmen or a different kettle of fish. I'm thinking of some other institutions, but 
it it is the case that you don't get on Fox News. It is the case that you don't get on talk radio. And since all these guys are more concerned about being primaried than they are about losing a general, yep. you lose a primary if Trump goes after, says something nice about your primary opponent or says something bad about you, or if um, you're not on Fox News a lot. Fox News is the conduit to win primaries for a lot of these solid red district guys. But before we go on about that, I really do have to talk about Online Trade Academy. Let's be honest. Most people weren't taught how to invest in school. And if you're like me, you've probably wondered, how can I do more than just buy and hold? Online Trading Academy wants you to start knowing now. As a leader in investing and trading education, Online Trading Academy teaches people just like you a step-by-step process designed to help you make the right moves in the financial markets. You'll discover common investor mistakes, learn about risk management skills, and how to develop a personal income and wealth education plan. It's simple to get started. OTA's flexible learning style lets you take classes at one of their more than 40 financial education centers or in an online classroom from the comfort and convenience of your home. Students have given Online Trading Academy a 94% satisfaction rating based on more than 190,000 reviews. No one will ever care about your financial future as much as you do. So now is the time to start learning how education could help you take better control of your financial future. From now on, a strong economy is the best time to prepare for a bad one. So sign up for a free three-hour introductory class at otatrade.com slash dingo. That's a free class in your area. Register at otatrade.com slash dingo. You'll even receive their professional insider's kit just for attending. That's otatrade.com slash dingo. Begin taking control of your financial future today with no obligation. All right, so we don't have a lot of time left. So first of all, you know, among the literally trillions of listeners of this podcast some of them are not big on twitter and social Mm -hmm. media so they may not know um that a senator actually works for r street uh senator um shoshana weinstein Uh, uh and for the what did i say weinstein uh, see, it's all these Jewy names. They get me all confused. Um, I can say that. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, um, no, but Shoshana is a force to be reckoned with on Twitter. And she's a um, she's the weirdest legal economic policy, zoning policy groupie. She is. That I have ever encountered. She um, loves this stuff. She eats it up. And yeah. she's relatively young. Yeah. It does not disparage her. She's just young in age. But she devours all things legal, all things regulatory, especially related to licensing reform. Yeah. And because she is so effervescent and like she always has a smile on her face yep. and she is always cheerful. She makes friends online even among people who um, would not otherwise agree with her. Uh People dig her, including you know Governor Ducey. Yeah, uh, they're they're buds. Um, they're, they're besties. And uh, um, people who are who are on Twitter, check out her Twitter feed. It'll take you about a day to adjust. It's like 
<laughs> it, it's like going down in one of those submarines. You know, you have to get used to the pressure. But it's um, <laughs> sloths. And... Um, there's a lot of sloths. There's a lot of hot dog stuff that I'm yeah. still not entirely clear on. My favorite are all the people who attack her positions because they think she actually is, is a sender. Yeah. And when she asks for money. Yeah, and she solicits <laughs> bribes and, and, and infuriates people. It's fantastic. So I, I hope I am helping Shoshana with her uh, social media presence out there. Um, She's great. Um, it, but does she go to the office every day? I see her there a bunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I'm there. I mean, I was in a meeting with her just yesterday, and we were getting into a micro fight about the Ninth Amendment. Uh-huh. She is more um, libertarian than I am. I'm more uh-huh. traditionally conservative, uh-huh. so we fight sometimes about these kind of legal matters. Uh-huh. But um, no, like it is. She's a kind of person who. In the office, you know she's there because there's just um, energy. There's sunshine. Yeah. She brings it. We all, I don't bring that. I'm old and cranky. <laughs> she's, she's one of these people that's very difficult to explain to people outside of Washington that they exist. There are all sorts of types in Washington that – you ever see Three Days of the Condor? No. Okay, great movie. Uh, Robert Redford, 1970s. The premise is, is that he um, works for the CIA and he reads everything. Uh-huh. Everything to scour it for signals intelligence or hidden stuff from the Soviets, whatever. And in Washington, uh, I, the funny thing is, is that there are probably people like that. I, I think I know some people like that. Yep. They just don't look like Robert Redford. Oh. And but they can if they want to. <laughs> Think tankers can be fit. <laughs> I say it again. I understand that. I'm not talking about fit. I'm talking about like attractive. Um, yeah, about like uh, I, I can't remember. Is it Catherine Deneuve that he, he beds in that movie? No, it's Faye Dunaway. Faye Dunaway, yeah. Um, the people who spend all day reading everything and digesting everything—they um, tend to be weird. They, they exist. My only point is that there are a lot of weird archetypes that exist in Washington mm-hmm. that are. And what I think is just for, sort of fascinating about Shoshana is that. that, that She's the first one of the digital age I've encountered. Oh, that's interesting. You know, um, sort of very online, very very into memes and stuff and all that kind of stuff. I'm much more used to the sort of IF Stone guys who are like hidden away, pumping out mimeograph newsletters. I mean, I knew those people growing up. (laughs) Um, Totally. So anyway, I just thought we'd talk about her for a second. So um, I haven't asked this as a closing question in a long time, but I used to ask it all the time. since you're uh, deep in the wonk world, um, when you talk to people from – you said earlier that people in Washington don't realize how much people outside of Washington don't really think about Washington, which I think is absolutely true. Yep. What is something about Washington that most, peop- that most people outside of Washington would be surprised by? Like when you first got involved here, what ran counter to your expectations about how Washington actually worked? Great question. Um, So it's easy to be cynical about public service everywhere. But there are lots and lots and lots of very, very good people in Washington, D.C. who care deeply about their content area Mm -hmm. and are extraordinarily wonky. Like they want to be the lifetime expert. You could work at CRS and you could focus on monetary policy in the 1970s and 80s and know everything about that. And you don't really have political aspirations, but you're just working hard on that thing. And there's a whole industry of people like that who – I think people outside of D.C. sometimes have a sense that everyone here is kind of – you know, just ambitious and climbing the pole and trying to do partisan stuff. There's some of that, but there are lots of people here who are just 
as decent and wonky and as smart as you could imagine. But the other side about of this is every time I work in Washington, D.C., I notice that I get more partisan, mm-hmm. that especially when I was working on Capitol Hill, there is something about the polarization. And I don't know if this has always been the case um, or if it's just more recent, that it it raises my blood pressure. It makes me want to behave in ways that are less virtuous. And I don't get that sense when I'm working closer to home. Like it's as though uh, state and local government fosters better behavior and D.C. either expects or fosters or encourages kinds of antisocial behavior. And there's a level of nastiness here that um, is just unhealthy. So one of the reasons why I'm so obsessive about getting power out of D.C., getting power out of the U.S. Supreme Court, getting power back into state and non-governmental hands is I just think something happens when we concentrate power here that is just unhealthy for the republic. I think that's probably right. All right. Andy Smerick, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to have you. I'm a longtime listener and a huge admirer, so thank you. Oh, I appreciate it. Uh, nice seeing you, Jack. Okay, so Andy, hold on, let me go. Ah, okay, so Andy has left the building. Um, I assume he's left the building. Maybe he's loitering in the lobby somewhere. And Jack, you have something exciting to announce here? Yes, the accent contest has truly begun. Our Anglosphere accent, our Anglosphere accented guests have now all submitted from their various locations audio of them all saying the same thing. And you, our listeners, get to decide who has the best accent. Uh, and our test audio, I, this was, I don't think this was my idea. I think someone suggested this specific text that we, that we have them all read. Uh, they, they are, by the way, uh, Charles Cook, Neil Ferguson, and Daniel Hannon. Quite the, quite the estimable bunch, I would say. Indeed. Uh, but here's the test audio. I am not going to do a British accent for this. But this is what the this is what they all read, and you'll hear them all in just a couple minutes, maybe even less. This is from, uh, I believe, the final problem, the Sherlock Holmes short story, and and the exact the, this quote appears in various Holmes media as well. I am quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It is necessary that you should withdraw. You have worked things in such a fashion that we have only one resource left. It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you have grappled with this matter, but I say unaffectedly that it would be a grief to me to be forced to take an extreme measure. Oh, you smile, sir, but it really would, I do assure you. This is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organization— the full extent of which even you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realize. You must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. And I just have to say, it was hard not to read that with a British accent. <laughs> that's very there's that's very British. Um, and of all of the possible passages, why did you pick? Oh, because as we all know, uh, British British uh, people make the best villains. Uh, there was there was an ad about this a couple of years ago. It's funny, Charlie Cook. You know, the British, in their writing, they spell um, E-R-M. Erm. Erm. And I never understood how that worked until I heard Charlie basically say um, and he says something that phonetically you could actually write out as erm. It's, it's fascinating. Zed. 
Um, <laughs> um, uh, so let me. I I will replace. I'll replace this with better audio that I have. But this is just so that you can. This is just so that you you can hear them all since you haven't heard any. Well, no, but our, we're going to leave it up to listeners, right? Yeah, well, how, what do you mean? Like that's you're going to you're going to play the real audio in the thing, right? Yeah. Okay, so I don't need to hear it now. I mean, you don't want to hear it? No, but I can hear it when when in the final thing. You never listen to the remnants. But but <laughs> I can for this case. We could also do three of those audio clips for like Twitter kind of thing, and let people decide. The public decide. I mean, I'm just gonna play that. Do you want to play them and comment on them? All right. Yeah. So go ahead. Play them. Play them. Play them. Okay. And we can keep this 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 fascinating actuality in the podcast too, if you want. Um, because this is gonna. I need a space to put these anyway, and this will make it easier for me to remember where they went. Fair enough. Uh, let's see. All right, here comes Charlie. I am quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It is necessary that you should withdraw. You have worked things in such a fashion that we have only one resource left. It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you have grappled with this matter, but I say unaffectedly that it would be a grief to me to be forced to take an extreme measure. Oh, you smile, sir, but it really would, I do assure you. This is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organization, the full extent of which even you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realize. You must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. I think that was very good. I mean, I, the thing is, I know Charlie so well, you can tell he's really enjoying hamming it up. <laughs> um, well, I think they all enjoyed it. So next comes Neil Ferguson, bringing the Scottish inflection. I'm quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It is necessary that you should withdraw. You have worked things in such a fashion that we have only one resource left. It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you have grappled with this matter, but I say unaffectedly that it would be a grief to me to be forced to take an extreme measure. Oh, you smile, sir, but it really would, I do assure you. This is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organization, the full extent of which even you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realize. You must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. I gotta say, in terms of pure acting, uh-huh. I think Neil wins out on that. Well, there's one more. I but yes, I do feel I did get a very strong sense of like he's actually in a movie. Yeah, or like that. or like he's one of the single best Scottish actors in Edinburgh uh, dinner theater. <laughs> um, but Which I, he may be. He may be. Uh, and last, but I don't. Well, we'll we'll find out if he's least. Uh, and certainly, if he is, then it is only in this respect. For in many mm-hmm. others, he is utmost. Forsooth. Yes, uh, Daniel Han- uh, Hannon, who just sent this to me yesterday. I'm quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. 
It is necessary that you should withdraw. You've worked things in such a fashion that we have only one resource left. It has been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you've grappled with this matter. But I must say unaffectedly that it would be a grief to me to be forced to take an extreme measure. Oh, you smile, sir, but it really would, I do assure you. This is not danger. It is inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organization, the full extent of which even you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realize. You must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. Okay, so what's interesting... (laughs) I'm enjoying this. He sounds... Daniel sounds like a professional uh, audiobook reader. Yeah. There's something about the clarity and the slight nanosecond longer space between punctuation marks. Um, <laughs> I can't quite describe it, but it's like, he, if, I mean, Ferguson th- sounds like an actor. Daniel sounds like he's he's a professional text reader, and it's it's kind of interesting. And Charlie, it's hard for me to gauge all this because I just, I, I, I'm, I'm most familiar with Charlie. Yeah. And um, you said that you had four, which uh-huh. is psychic because there actually are four. So it is known that Sean Connery has retired from acting. But by some miracle, I, I out of pure whim, I sent this to his <laughs> email, which I have. Uh-huh. Uh, but did, nobody asked me for it. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in the same – I keep it – with, I regard it with the same secrecy as I do my Canadian girlfriend. <laughs> uh, and he responded. So we have Sean Connery doing this for us, too. I'm quite sure that a man of your intelligence will see that there can be but one outcome to this affair. It's necessary that you should withdraw. You've worked things in such a fashion that we've only one resource left. It's been an intellectual treat to me to see the way in which you've grappled with this matter, but I say unaffectedly that it would be a grief to me to be forced to take an extreme measure. Oh, you smile, sir, but it really would, I do assure you. This is not danger, it's inevitable destruction. You stand in the way not merely of an individual, but of a mighty organization, the full extent of which even you, with all your cleverness, have been unable to realize you must stand clear, Mr. Holmes, or be trodden underfoot. So, yeah, I think Sean Connery did a pretty good job. I, I think he did. So is that a friend of yours who's an impersonator, or is that actually him? Uh, are, you, are you wondering? <laughs> I like, am wondering. So that uh, that's actually Neil. Is it really? Uh-huh. It's him doing a Sean Connery? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good Sean Connery. Yeah. Um. It helps when you already have the Scottish accent. Yeah, it's like when you're American, you want to do a southern twang. Yeah. Um, which Brits can sometimes do comically poorly. Um, I don't know that I want to anoint or even... Decide on a winner now. I wasn't Yeah, asking. first of all, I, yeah, it's, first of all it's, it's, I'm not the decider. We said it's up to listeners to decide, right? Yep. Um, and we got to figure out... Is it going to be purely Twitter poll? Because then you're going to get a lot of non-listener scum involved in this. Uh, I mean, it's just the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Um, I guess we were, we can encourage people to email their No, that's because, yeah, I mean, there's that. I mean, that would actually kind of be kind of interesting if people 
if the email poll differed from the Twitter poll. Um, but I guess we'll just do it as a, as, as a Twitter poll. And people can find the links to the Twitter poll at, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm also very partial to a Scottish accent. So yeah. it's hard for me to um, um, adjudicate this. Well, Was I, that supposed to be Moriarty speaking? Yes. Okay. Um, what is the name of the organization that he's part of that is like the Hydra of the 19th century England or whatever? I don't... Early 20th century England? Uh, I don't know if there actually is a... Well, I'm sure we're going to find all of our Holmes experts responding to this. But I, I don't think that... It's just he's said to be that the, the spy, a spider at the center of a web every... And he knows all of the vibrations. But I don't know if they... That may be something you're thinking of from like the movies where yeah, the, I'm thinking of the name movies. yeah, the whatever it was that he was in charge. And of. is is are you are you a big Sherlock Holmes guy? I've read I've read some of the stories, but not 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 that many. So in the movies, Sherlock Holmes's brother is M. That's a Mycroft. Yeah, which, M. What do you mean? Well, so in James Bond movies, M is like the head of like MI six, whatever. Yeah, or MI. I can't remember which. But, you know, the Secret Service, the British Secret Service. Yeah. Is that in the books, too? Mycroft, Mycroft is not – he is in the books, but he does not, he's not really the M to Sherlock Holmes. He's like – he's a sort of a strange – not a strange. They still have a good relationship, but they just do very different things, and he's – But does Mycroft work in the government? Yes. For the spy, for he is in the government, but he's not like – he's not always – Sometimes he and Sherlock have to sort of work together, but they're they're not really happy about doing. Either of them is really happy about doing it, and he's portrayed as at least as intelligent as Sherlock, if not more, certain certain ways because he's more practical. Uh-huh. Um, although not in the um, in the Game of Shadows, he was portrayed as even le- more like airy and abstract than Sherlock by Stephen Fry, which I didn't really like. Um, although there are other parts of that movie to like. But not as many as the first one. But yes, Mycroft is not an invention of the of the movies. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I just it was. I knew he. I knew he had a brother in the books. I didn't know if he was the equivalent of the head of British intelligence. The way they. I mean, they make it sound like, you know, he's like the precursor of the James Bond M's or something like that. Um, but anyway, doesn't matter. Okay, so um, we're gonna run the Twitter poll soon. We'll wait for this podcast to be out. Obviously. Um, I hope not everybody fast forwards through the conversation with Merrick just to get to this thing. Um, and uh, we did not have, we did have um, Marion Tupi record a version of this. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to hear that too? Um, sh- it seems unfair because he does. He is not. He spent some of his childhood in in England, I believe. But it's he's more um, he's more Eastern European. Well, he's right. Slovakian, and he spent time in South Africa, I believe. Um, we can play that um, just as a bonus track. But you heard that already. Yeah, no, we can leave that out. I mean, it's fine. I mean, it, if, if he's not competing, if this is purely for Anglospheric accents... Um, yeah, it would seem unfair. Yeah. We'll do a different... Once we have a sufficient amount of uh, Eastern... Of uh, European... Of Continentals. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, uh, like I really want to get Leon Aaron on here, and... Um, He's got a fantastic Russian accent. Um, we'll have to pick a different uh, villain. Uh, ooh, you know who it can be? It can be Gary Oldman's villain from Air Force One. We'll have them read. That wouldn't be bad. Yeah, he can. They can read his uh, 
his his strikingly uh, strikingly post liberal monologues about what motivates him as a terrorist. On the other hand, um, you know the sub commander in. Red October had a Scottish accent. <laughs> oh, but they did the trick. Yeah, they, no. they they did the trick where he like he's actually speaking Russian, but they like it's a conceit, which I don't mind actually. No, that was better. Yeah. That was just fine. Makes it easier. Um, and then they when it when it actually matters again that he speaks Russian, he does speak Russian or have a Russianish accent. All right. So um, thanks again to Andy Smerick for coming on. Thanks to our listeners. Check out the contest when it goes on Twitter. Um, thanks to our sponsors, Online Trade Academy and Circle. And thanks to Jack for uh, taking point on, on corralling these uh, examples of euphony. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next time. I would have liked to see Montana. That's from Hunt for Red October. I know, and Raise Rabbits. Is it? He I don't want, know what that... He, oh, oh, right. That guy wanted to raise rabbits in Montana. Oh, yeah, but that's not what he says when he dies. And then he went on to become one of the world's greatest paleontologists. <laughs> it's quite the <laughs> career shift. Okay, there it is.